Welcome to this week's Chinwag edition of the Sword and Staff. I'm one of your hosts, Josh Robinson, and joining me today, as always, is my co-host, Richie Brock. And on today's episode, we are going to be discussing several things. First, we're going to be discussing last week's episode that we did on Reenchanting the Heavens. Uh, we've got some questions that kind of relate to that and some of the things that we've talked about in the past in our Cryptids episode. Um, and then after that, we're going to be diving back into our conversation on Hellier. So we know that a lot of people have watched that and have yep. been reaching out to us and asking us when we we're going to continue talking about Hellier. So we're going to start diving back into that today. And then after that, we'll have a conversation on how Facebook is no longer neutral whenever it right. comes to re-enchanting the universe. And we'll kind of end today's episode by talking a little bit about our Halloween episode and our plans for the month of October. So should be a fun episode. Are you excited about Not today's episode? All right. Well, to go ahead and get us into today's episode, Richie, what did you think about last week's episode on re-enchantment? Anything that stood out to you that you want to talk about or... Anybody say anything that maybe stood out to you? Anything like that? Um, I know it was a it was a, a lot to cover in that episode. It was a really big episode. Yeah. I know I had some people uh, on Instagram. I was at work and my phone was blown up. People were tagging us in their stories and sharing the episode. Yeah. Yeah. I saw that a few times too, where people would tag us in stories and stuff like yeah. that. And um, yeah, so I saw some some stuff that came out of that. So it seems like that that was a really, I felt like that it was a foundational episode that kind of laid the foundations for some of the things that we're going to talk about a little bit more in the next couple of episodes on re-enchanting the creation and then re-enchanting the church. But I felt like that there was a ton of stuff to cover in that episode. Oh, yeah. And so it was like trying our best to like fit all of it in, into there. Um, some of the things that kind of uh, still are kind of blowing my mind, I guess is I, for whatever reason, man, the hierarchy of angels really just blows my mind. Yep. Like, I think that it blew my mind a little bit more last week because we actually got in. Like, we didn't just talk about that there's a hierarchy of angels and then name them like we had before, but we actually spent time, like, actually talking about the roles of the angels in these hierarchies. And, like, it's just it's just so wild to me because you can, like, if you if you look around, you can actually see some of the stuff that we talked about. Like last week we were talking about like principalities and, and you know, that kind of thing and how they're typically, you know, associated with like changes in powers and things like that. And, you know, uh, there was a, there was a really interesting quote from Peter Kreeft that I posted on our Instagram last week that I thought really summed up kind of what we were getting at with, with some of what we were talking about last week. And, um, Basically, uh, it, it goes like this, and this is from his book uh, on Tolkien, on um, the philosophy of Tolkien. And so he basically says, we've lost the ancient vision of St. John in Revelation and St. Augustine in the city of God that war on earth is a manifestation of war in heaven. The war between Sauron and Gandalf is a battle within the older and greater war between Melkor and Iluvatar. The idea of the Christian knight in arms for the defense of the good is one of the greatest Christian ideas. For ancient, for the ancients, a just war could be glorious. So it kind of reminds me, there's a line um, from uh, one of the Lord of the Rings books, and you really see that worked out, this kind of view um, with the, you know, 
kind of like this just war thing. Uh, you really see it worked out in Tolkien. There is a quote in there um, about the the Rohirrim and right. whatever they're going to war against uh, the powers of Mordor. It says that they, I love this. It says that they were singing while they were slaying. Yeah, and like that's kind of. That's kind of the, whenever you understand, I guess what I'm saying, this spiritual view that we're, we're putting forth here, this re-enchanted view of the heavens, whenever you see things like, uh, well, like what we see in Afghanistan right now, um, where you have these forces of evil doing great harm to people there, you realize that behind the scenes, there is something dark behind it all right that it's a warring between principalities you know that kind of thing it's these these principal these fallen principalities um who are who belong to the kingdom of darkness warring against the principalities that have that are submitted to god and who are part of the kingdom of light and they're doing battle with one another and so i think that that's really really important to recognize And, and for me personally that's something that's still sticking with me um and it's I, I can tell that it's really changing the way that I I view a lot of these types of things, right? Because I mean, right. think think about that. Like at one point, as a pastor, you know, I I was almost at the position at one point where um, I was not, and I'm, I'm still not a fan of war. Uh, like I'm not like yeah. I'm like not like a neocon that like is a war hawk. Like yeah, I'm not a fan of war, right? But the re- here's the reality: um, seeing this has helped me realize that there are times to there are just times to wage war right because like whenever you realize that this vision is a holistic vision that the spiritual or the transcendent and the material are attached and they are intertwined with one another it makes you realize that if you if you're if you just let things like that go or things like if you just let evil walk around unchallenged Really what you're doing is you're letting the forces of darkness walk around unchallenged, yep. right? And I think that for a lot of Christians, we don't think that anymore. So that leads to us as being things like pacifists, you know? Yep. And if we have people who are listening who are pacifists, I totally understand where you're coming from. I was pretty close to that at one point myself. Um, and so no no disrespect or anything like that. But, um, but I think that uh, that position puts us in a position to where we just let the forces of darkness walk around unchallenged, right? Um, that, and I think the other side of the spectrum is to become a war hawk, yeah. uh, you know, where you want to wage war on everything. So, I, But I think that this position that we're putting forth here in our re-enchanting the heavens, well, that we did put forth in our re-enchanting the heavens episode, really gives a paradigm that helps make sense of some of this stuff. You know what I mean? So that's that's one of the things that stuck with me, so... Well, we also got a question um, in regards to this episode in some ways, and it fits into some of the things that we were talking about. And it also fits back into our cryptids episode that we did in our last series on spiritual beings. And this question, as always, comes from our friend Vivek. (laughs) And Vivek is a part of the Order of the Sword and Staff group on Facebook. So if you guys aren't a part of that, you need to become a part of that because there are some interesting conversations starting to happen there. Um, so basically, here is his question, and he says, is it fair to say that mythological beings and creatures are based on spiritual realities? 
the more that I think about elementals like dwarves, elves, gnomes, fairies, and, and others, and real, realize that these might be types of spirits, it makes me wonder if the mythological creatures of different cultures are based on spirit entities. If that's the case, does it make some of the mythological beings demonic in nature? So I don't know if you want to take a stab at answering that question, because I, I know that for you, things like the fairies and stuff like that is in your wheelhouse. I'm going to talk about this question, too, because I have a lot of things to say about this question and, and just how mythology works in general as well. So I don't know if you want to go first and I'll follow suit. or I kind of want to hear what you have to say about it first. Okay, well, okay. See where you're, what angle you're going to come at it, because I know what I think, but I want to see where you're going to come at it. Well, so here's kind of what I think. I, I think that it is fair to say that mythological beings are based on spiritual beings. And this is exactly the case that we made in our cryptids episode, right? We actually had a section in that podcast where we talked about mythological beings and and connected them to spiritual beings in the Bible, right? Like we even read some Bible verses, and you'll have to go back to that, that episode to kind of reference that now. But we actually connected uh, those beings to places in the Bible that talk about things like centaurs donkey centaurs you know um you know and uh sirens and things like that like the bible mentions these types of quote-unquote mythological creatures right and so uh, basically the way that the bible deals with that is that they are spiritual beings and so so that's how so I, i would i would point you back there i would say if you want a fuller treatment on that go back there but but yes the answer to the question is yes but he goes on and he says, um, you know, he says that he thinks that it, it realized that they're types of spirit. And he wonders if the mythological creatures are based on spirit entities. And he says, if that is the case, does that make some of these mythological creatures demonic in nature? Well, I think that the clear answer to that question is yes. Yeah. Um, you know, like it goes back to the, to the Irish mythology that we talked right. about, like with the spiritual beings there of like the, the Tuatha de Danon, and the Fomorians, right? Like it, we saw how that connected to like the Genesis six sons of God event and how they were also related to the disembodied spirits of the Nephilim. And right. Cause even within that, you see the divide back and forth between some that are fallen. That's right. Yeah. yeah 100%. And so, um, so yeah, I, I absolutely do think that, um, there that most of these beings that were that he's talking about here are demonic now we've also talked about as well that there are um good versions of this right like right. we've talked about like the you know in the the angelic hierarchy that we talked about last week that there is a good version of things like the elemental spirits now i, I think that the term elemental spirits is what gets attached to the dark forces in scripture right. um but you know you see that with things like the uh i think it was the virtues you know, in, uh, in the, the angelic hierarchy, like there are like, it's in that second choir of angels, that whole choir, their responsibilities are to remember, we talk about it, it. It comes from God close to his presence. It works its way out into the world and then works its way out to humanity. That choir is tasked with the governing and operation of the cosmos, right? right? So you have some who govern the planets and some who govern nature, some who govern the waters, um, you know, that type of thing. 
and then you have some that actually do the operation of that, right? That make the sun that makes the sun go. They control the orbits and that's the exactly, seasons. Yeah. That's exactly right. And that you see, you see really. And we talked about this last week. Uh, you see really similar, you know, angelologies in Tolkien and Lewis, right? I mean, with like the Valar and the Maiar, right? Like the Valar, they kind of govern the creation in some ways. There's these high angelic beings, and then the Maiar are these lesser angelic beings, and they kind of do the the work, right? It, it's it's kind of like that. You know, you, you kind of see that fleshed out a little bit in like uh, Lewis's like Ransom series, where you've got like these spirits over some of these, you know, these these planets, you know, and, you know, the, the whole field of Arbol and, you know, all that kind of thing. So, so yeah, <laughs> that's, that's kind of how I would, how I would answer that. Like, um, there, there are bad, you know, some of these beings are bad. Um, I, and some of them are, I mean, it makes sense too yeah. why humanity comes in contact or they're more familiar with the bad versions of these things. Yeah. Like elemental spirits are trying to subjugate and take territory for their own That's in their own name. So, yeah. Well, and you're starting to get lower down on the hierarchy of being as well. So like you're, it's not so often that you're going to run into, you know, a throne or a cherubim or a seraphim. I mean, these are beings that are, stationed guarding sacred space like the seraphim guards the way to eden right and or they guard the throne of god you know yeah, that even kind of, the stuff like virtues you're not going to see a, a virtue in good standing with god like trying to barter sacred wisdom for right. a, a foothold in the land with humanity right yeah that's just not how it's going to work yeah. so um so yeah so that's kind of our our take on it and so uh, but I, I figured that this could also lead us into a a broader conversation here about how just mythology works. Because here's what I I suspect. I suspect that a lot of people think that just because a being is mythological, that it's not historical. And that's not true. And that's not our position on this stuff. We, we think that, so, you know, Mike Heiser, we love Mike Heiser and we've talked about Mike Heiser a lot. Mike Heiser just released a video um, here recently from a larger conversation that he did with Stovall Weems from Celebration Church on how uh, mythologizing and, and yeah, mythologizing is just really inevitable. Like, everybody does it. Like, it's inescapable. You can't get around the fact that, like, whenever you tell a story, you're going to mythologize it. Right. Right? So, so he, he gives... Well, here's, here's just some, some personal examples, right? Like... If you involve the characters of God or Satan or angels or demons in your story, like you are theologizing or it would, you know, in academic circles, it would fall under the realm of mythology because it's involving these spiritual beings outside of our plane of existence, right? right? So if you tell a story in your life that involves these characters, you are mythologizing, right? Um, So like... So, for example, um, I'm trying to think of some personal examples right now <laughs> in my life. Uh, you know, it, it's kind of like, it's. well, here's just kind of a general example. Like, if you're a Christian, we've all had those moments where it's kind of like um, something, something crazy has happened, right? You've lost a job or um, you've, you, whatever, something like that. You've lost a job. And it seems like there's no hope, right? Like there's right. no way that you can possibly 
you know, get something, you know, before the bills come around. And then all of a sudden this door opens up, right? Whenever as Christians, we talk about like God opened this door that I just was not expecting. Right. And, you know, it's like he opened this door and he found and like he provided for me whenever I didn't think that there was a way that is mythologizing. Right. Because, I mean, think about it. We're involving God in this story, right? And he's outside of our plane of existence. Now, it doesn't mean that he doesn't interact with our plane of existence. He does. Um, but that, at its core, that that is theologizing. And so it's, I would say this, because of that, history and myth are not things that need to be at odds with one another, right? I right. mean, they, like, even, you know, even atheists in some ways mythologize, right? Like, it's, in, oh, it's, it's inescapable, yep. right? Like, they may use may use words like coincidence or synchronicity or, you know, things like that. But it's, uh, you know, it's basically just different categories for the same things that we're saying. Right. So it's mythologizing and re-enchanting is inevitable. It's, you can't escape it. So, um, so with these stories, here's how I would say that you should view them. I think that as moderns, we're, we're, we tend to see these and we see things like sirens or centaurs or uh, you know, <laughs> some of the stuff that he mentioned, like elves and stuff like that. And we tend to just like write that off. Like, okay, those, those beings don't exist. Right. Right. Because they're mythological. And I think that the biblical worldview is that we don't write those spiritual beings off. And we we realize that history and mythology goes away, and mythology is really the way of telling a story from a spiritual perspective, right? So the these beings that a lot of the, for example, the Irish in their mythology were writing about, these are real spiritual beings that are presenting themselves in this way, right? Like presenting themselves in the form of, say, leprechaun or fairy or whatever, right? So. Right. We need not to be like, oh, that's just a myth, right? Those are just tales, and those aren't real historical beings. Like, that's not the way that people from the ancient world would have viewed it, and that's not the way that we view it. So I don't know if you've got anything you want to drop in on that, but that's some of the stuff that I'm thinking about this question. So I mean, you you covered it pretty well. I mean, that's exactly where I was going to come at it from. Yeah, okay. Well, so the next part that we're going to talk about here, and all of these things will kind of flow into one another, yeah. is Hellier. So we're oh back. Boy. So we're back to our conversation on Hellier, and so I, I started rewatching uh, some of it again. I know that listeners have been uh, watching it as well, and we've had a lot of people ask about it and asking when we were going to cover it again. And here's, I'll just kind of catch you back up on what my thoughts were because it's been a little while since we've talked about it yeah basically my thoughts on hellier are this it is an attempt at re-enchantment and that fits in perfectly with what we're talking about right now in our re-enchantment series right but i think that it is a i think that it is a pagan way of of a way of re-enchanting the world yeah. like ulti- you, you could definitely say it's distinctly pagan yeah um, well, especially after, well, spoilers for people who hasn't watched, but we warned you, um, yep. um, especially in, at the end of season two, whenever they're calling on pan, right. you know what I mean? Like invoking pan in a cave. Like that's, it is a, it is a, dist- I think that, I think that Hellier is a distinctly pagan way 
of re-enchanting the world and presenting it through the narrative and uh, story device of the hero's journey. So I, right. I, I think that I think that it's like I think that it's very similar to like the Odyssey, yeah. like it's or you know or using this framework of the hero's journey. We've talked about this in the other Hellier episode that we did as well, right? Um, but if you don't know what the the hero's journey is, you know you can just go to Google and type in hero's journey. You know it's this type of framework that you see a lot of the myths of the ancient world based around, and you know is uh, really pointed out by um, a guy named Joseph Campbell. You know, but basically, you know, the way that the hero's journey works is, you know, you it starts off with this call to adventure, right? right? And then after that, you know, you cross a threshold and you meet a mentor. And then after you meet the mentor, you're tempted. And then after that, there's this type of abyss moment where you have this death and, and rebirth. And then through this death and rebirth, you're transformed, right? And then there's this atonement with the father moment. And there's this return back to the you know, the, the world of the known or, you know, that whole thing. And so, but like a great example of this is like Star Wars. Star Wars follows the path of the hero's journey. So like Luke Skywalker gets this call to adventure, right? Right. Like his, you know, he's on this planet and he's just dreaming of doing more than what he's doing, right? And eventually what happens? He, he receives the call to adventure and then he meets a mentor. Who does he meet? Meets Ben Kenobi. Right? right, old man Ben Kenobi. He's going to become Luke's mentor, and then you see the threshold crossed. Right, Luke is now coming out of the normal world, and he's going into the unknown. And there you see trials and failures. Right, you see him on the Millennium Falcon, right, with Han Solo, and you know he's he's there, and he's got you know the whole Jedi helmet thing on, and he's got the thing that's shooting the lasers, and he's got the lightsaber. And he's getting shot up by the thing, right? He's, yep. he's, he's learning new skills, but he's failing at them, right? And then you see that he starts to grow in those skills, right? There's growth and there's new skills. And then there's this death and rebirth moment. And you're like, where's the death and rebirth moment in A New Hope? Well, it's whenever they go into like the big trash compactor. and the, the, the monster, right, is like, it's just like this illustration we're looking at. Yep. Like the monster's, you know, coming up and it's going to eat Han and, you know, uh, Luke and I think Leia is in there with yeah. him. It's been a while since I've seen A New Hope, but and then what happens though? There's they come out of it, right? Uh, they come out of it, and there's change that happens, right? There are new people because of that, and you know that ends up leading to uh, you know Kenobi dies, right? Because that's usually what happens to the mentor, right? Eventually, the mentor serves their purpose, and then they die. It's kind of like um, Dumbledore. Right. Right. Yep. It's kind of like Dumbledore. Exactly. Like in Harry Potter, he like serves the purpose of walking Harry through. He gets Harry to where he needs yeah. to be and then he falls off the scene. And then he falls off the scene, right? It's, yep. it's, yeah. You know, in some ways, you know, Gandalf kind of does that in Lord yep. of the Rings. You know, there's a resurrection moment for him. Um, he's an angelic being and, you know, that whole thing. But there, it's kind of the same with him. He gets them pretty much through the minds of Moria. but And he's the one who faces the Balrog. And then, you know, he, he, dies too like even in narnia you have aslan gets the pevensey children to yeah. to right before the battle and then he dies but i mean he returns but still yep. Yep. He's still there yep so it's the same thing and then yep. so after that you know there's they change right and you go from a person who was you know had failures and trials and now you're tempted again but 
you stand up to the temptation. And then Luke right. destroys the Death Star, right? And then then he come, they come out of the world of the unknown and they go into back into the normal world, but they return changed, right? And then so you see them standing there, right? And they got the medals around them and, you know, it ends on this happy ending, you know. Well, Hellier's doing the same thing. Like literally as you've been describing the hero's journey, I've been placing the scenes from Hellier along the way yeah it's been going through there because it's so evident that's exactly what's going on yeah i mean they get this call to adventure right which is the letters right david christie right and then after that david you know or terry wrist yeah right they get these emails it's this call to adventure and then what happens they go out on this adventure they start chasing the phenomena uh because of these synchronicities you know and that whole thing and eventually there's these trials there's these failures and then season two they meet a mentor right right at the end of season one it's all about how they got to hellier and it wasn't anything like that what they were expecting yeah they 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 cross through the threshold they have the trials and the errors and it's not what they thought it was right now season two picks up right off the bat they start getting in touch with several people to mentor them. One of them is um, uh, Darren Berger from the uh, who had Tanya. the yep, yep his daughter Tanya, and Darren Berger was the guy who had seen who had the initial uh, contact with injured cold right. back during the Mothman you know case, and uh, you know so there's one type of mentor, and then after that you got Alan Greenfield who they actually suspect is the kind of invisible hand. Yeah. behind the whole thing and that's what i think I, yeah, he's, I he's it's awful he's awful convenient to the story yeah the plot. well you know to me it's here's what i think i think that i think that all of them are in on this like so for example carl pfeiffer who is the producer of the the whole thing he studied like storytelling like he actually has written books i don't know if people know that or not so he would be some like he, in college that was his major, so he would have been very familiar with this narrative device of the hero's journey, especially studying the classics. Right. Yeah. So I think that it's this attempt to create a type of new mythology in some ways, and it does it for the sake of initiating people into the occult. That's what right, I because that's the one of the main driving points behind it is initiation. Yeah. yeah. Well, you see that language all throughout, right? Right. Like become initiated. Like even in the the art and the posters for it. Yeah, right. And like they even talk about later on that they think that they're being put through a ritual. Right. And whenever they meet Alan Greenfield in season two, he actually tells them that they're in the hero's journey. Yeah. Like, so it's not just us, you know, like this is our take. Like Greenfield tells them that. And he's, Greenfield's this master, you know. He's mag- like this master magician behind the scenes. There. Yeah, this thalamic yeah. master magician, you know, who comes, who is very, uh, you know, influenced by Aleister Crowley. So, you know, I think that that's what's going on. I, I think that it is a... And they make it a point to mention that the whole the whole series really hit hard with the occult community. Yeah. Like, the, everybody in the occult community saw what was going on. Yeah. You know, it's... So, I, that's what I think. That's kind of my take on it. I think that it is... Um, I think that it is a story... T- it's, it's told through the, the lens of the hero's journey. And the reason why is because that's what connects to humanity. Right. Right? Like... That's the reason why all of the stories, the myths of old, use that. It's just this device that connects to humanity. And so I, I think that it's being told through that lens. 
And like, so for example, like the mentor that they meet, you know, we just talked about that. And at the end of season two, it ends with this death and rebirth moment, which we've talked about this before in the other episode. But it ends with Greg basically shedding off his Christian past and invoking and calling upon the god of Pan, the Greek god Pan. Yeah, they even go in the in season two. They even talk about the death and rebirth of Pan. Yeah, yep. And de- and he he even talks about it in terms of being an ego death. Right. You know what I mean? So he even uses that language. And even Pan, they describe him as the only god that ever died. Yeah. Right. So, you know. Yeah. So um, so that's what I think. I think that it is a tool. Uh, it's a story being told through this classic lens of the hero's journey. And it's meant to initiate people into this journey because they're having people, you know, participate in the, the actual research right, and stuff. Even from like an occult perspective. I mean, it, it's, it's laid out like one giant ritual. Yeah. I mean, even down to it's the laid out like a baptism. It's laid out right. like a baptism. Yep. Baptism follows the same pattern of the hero's journey too. Like you get this call to adventure, right? Like you, you are called to belong to God. Right, everybody in it has a precise element that they play to carry the ritual along. That's right. You you meet a mentor, right, in the church. It disciples you, and then there's trials and fa- trials and failures, and you know you become a disciple of Jesus. And then what happens? Death and rebirth. Right. In in what? In baptism, right? And so it follows the same path as the hero's journey, right? So these liturg- liturgies are are formed on this pattern. Rituals are formed on this pattern. So I think that's what's going on with it. I think it's a ritual to initiate people into thelemic type well thelemic esque magic um for the purpose it's of like what's the goal at the end of it i mean what's the, the prize what's the treasure that they're going to walk away with yeah i think that it's a re-enchanted view of creation and the world and the tools that are given to you are magic right you know basically like because there's a point in season two where greg is laying out the whole phenomena like what he suspects is paying behind the scenes yeah and he gets to the point where he even and he gets to the christian perspective where it's uh the devil surrounded by the witches so he takes it there to where we're going with this thing but he just it's almost like he intentionally kind of steps it back yeah it's like it's a world basically i think the world that they present is a world of the gods where the gods are still active and you're guided by synchronicity right and the means of contact uh, with these beings is ritual, and and even like paran like paranormal stuff, you know, like they kind of blend it all together, right? right? Like they use like paranormal researching techniques with occult techniques and make a system out of it in some ways. So that's kind of some of my thoughts on it. Um, yeah, that definitely is. Even on the whole, that's how things are emerging in the paranormal world now. It used to be very scientific forward. But now it's really based on the occult. Yeah. Yeah. You, you're starting to see it more and more where people are starting to use like. I mean, I know people that use tarot cards. That's to, what I was about to say. During cases to interrogate spirits. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. So I think that some of the questions that people may have is, okay, that's kind of our big, big picture thoughts on it. Right. So let's bring it down to in a way that we haven't yet. So let's talk about just some of the. I don't know, just some of the scenes throughout, you know? Like, some of it, I think, is kind of wild. Yeah. Um, like, some of it, I think, that they take stuff too far and thinking that it's something's a synchronicity, you know, that time, type of thing. But let's start with some of the big stuff, and then maybe in some other episodes we can talk about some more of this stuff. 
Do you think that they were actually, whenever they were invoking Pan, that they were actually in contact with Pan? I do. Yeah. I think I don't see how Pan would resist something like that. Yeah. Well, it fits into this worldview that we're putting forth, right? That these spiritual beings, these, uh, well, we've talked about this before. These fa- There are fallen angelic beings out there, right, who were on this hierarchy. And Pan would be one of them. Right. Right? And so, I mean, they rebelled. They failed for this purpose of getting that kind of attention, that kind of worship for, that these rituals invoke. So I don't see him at, turning away from something like that at all. Yeah. I think I think that's what I think too. So I think that whenever they're like and it's the place that you would that you would get in contact with Pan. Like in the underworld, right? right. Like you've got Pan's grotto at the foot of That's exactly what I was gonna mention. Yeah. Well I mean Pan was around back in the biblical times, right? Like Pan like at the, the foot of Caesarea Philippi, at the mount of at the foot of Mount Hermon, which is where the Genesis six stuff happened, by the way you had this underground cavern called the Grotto of Pan, right? Where people went and got in contact with Pan at the foot of Mount Hermon. So this stuff connects in to this you know, divine council worldview that right. we're talking about, right? It's like there are points of connection. So I, I really think that they were invoking Pan as it's well. It's interesting to see it lined up from the biblical story because you have Jesus going in front of the grotto of pain and talking about the, the gates of hell not prevailing against the church. And then you have uh, in Hellier, you have Dana and all of them literally in a, in a cave. Yeah, below the earth. Below the earth, yeah. invoking pain. Yeah, it fits in with the, the cosmology and the symbolism put forth in the Bible, right? Like the grotto of pain is the gates of hell, right? So where is that at? That's beneath the earth. Where is it right. that they go to contact pain? Beneath the earth. Yeah, it's right? almost like you see Jesus putting a, a sorry we're closed sign on the gates. Yeah. Right there and then in Hellier, it's like Dana and Greg are ringing the dinner bell and reopening the doors. Yeah. Well, it's a it's a reminder in some ways that, you know, Pan dies. The dead, Pan, like, but the reason why he dies is because Christ has disarmed him. Right. Right. Like he, he has, you know, Colossians 2, 2.15. He has disarmed the rulers and the principalities and the authorities, and he's put them to open shame, right? That doesn't mean that they're still not out there. Like, wanting your attention and wanting your worship and wanting your devotion, they are. But they no longer have the sway and the power that they once had. It's almost like a big full circle moment between those two points right there. Yeah. Have uh, the rise of Christian dominance with Jesus, like, just slapping the clothes sign on the gates and then... Now, in modernity, as Christianity is on the decline and paganism is on the rise again, you have people going back to pan. Well, it's everybody establishing those lines of communication. Everybody is wanting a reenchanted world. Right. You know, like no one wants to continue living life where there's no transcendence, right? Where there's no overlap between heaven and earth. Because whenever you do that, there's no meaning to earth, to the world anymore. You know what I mean? And I think that's what Dan, you know, Greg and Dana and that group's finding out, right? Like that there's, there's no meaning in being an atheist. Like, yeah, I mean, you may dislike the Christian God and all that, but but reject him, and there's no meaning to life. You have to make your own meaning. And guess right. what? We're not very good at making our own meaning. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. I mean, tr- just try that for a little while, yep. right? Like, I mean, a part of my story is. You know, I, I didn't become a Christian. But until, even at that, you're still going to eventually pull from other places. Yeah. Yep. You know, 
I didn't become a Christian until I was 18. Yeah, 18. And I lived for 17 years trying to create my own meaning. And guess what? I was like the most miserable person in the world. Yeah. Like I, I've realized that I cannot create my own meaning. Meaning has to be imposed and it has to come from outside of us. So I, I see why people are flocking to this, right? Like I can see why they're trying to open those old lines of contact. They're looking for meaning, right? A re-enchanted world. So. Like even people that I've talked to that are going into the new age, they, they've came to me and said that it was their only choice because there's no alternative. There's no Christian alternative to these categories. Yeah. Like the church is all, is all but silent on things like this. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that's a great point. I think that's a really, really good point because I've went through the comment section and like, and I've looked at a lot of, you know, the, the comments left by people who have watched Hellier. I mean, overall, overall it's had over a million watches yeah. at this point. And people are always like, thank you for giving me a new view of the world. You know what I mean? This view of the world where there's magic and there's transcendence and there are, there are gods and there's the weird stuff that I can't. Hellier really marked a point, even in the paranormal community, where the paradigm kind of shift. It went from technology and a scientific focus like that you had with, uh, it was even laid down by like the people at Taps and Ed and Lorraine Warren to very strictly paganism and a more re-enchanted worldview. Yeah. Yeah. So here's another question. I think you said some great things there that could transition us into the next topic, which is Facebook. Uh, but oh but I, I want to hold off before we go there because Facebook's going to fit into this conversation. Yep. Um, but I want to say this. Um, what do you think that we should think about things like synchronicities? You know what I mean? Like, what, like, you, I mean, you hear, I mean, there's like memes about synchronicity. Right. Right? Like you've, if you've seen the aliens guy from uh, Ancient Aliens where he's like, aliens. There's people who have pasted Greg Newkirk's head on that and it says synchronicity. So here's kind of my thoughts on synchronicity. Um, I think you got to be careful. Right. Because I'm not saying that there aren't synchronicities. I I wouldn't say that. Like there are just those moments where there are meaningful coincidences. You know what I mean? Like these serendipitous moments where you're like something happens and you're like there's meaning to that. Yeah. Like, I think that God can definitely use that. You know what I mean? I, like, I, I mean, I can look at my life and see ways that I think that God has used it too. But I think that it's something that we have to keep in mind and submit to the Lordship of Christ because I, I, I think that, I think that the, the synchronicities that they're chasing are real patterns. Right. But you have to ask the question of, like, source. You know what right. I mean? Like, I mean, is this something that's sort of like a natural symptom of the phenomenon, or is this something that's laid in their path to guide them down yeah, so, at a certain point? Yeah, so I guess that's one of the questions. Is, is, it, is it the phenomena that's, that's manifesting itself in these patterns? So maybe we can answer that question and talk about that. But, um, or is there this invisible hand behind it all that's just dropping these little yeah. breadcrumbs? Little breadcrumbs yeah. Well, yeah. I think it's probably a little bit of both. Probably. You know, I, yeah. I think that I, my personal take is that Alan Greenfield is behind the whole thing. Right. And I think that Greg's a part of it. Um, I think that Greg's a part of it. I think that all of them are a part of it. And they're using this as a device to initiate people into thalamic magic. That's my, that's my personal opinion. Uh, I could be wrong about that. 
but it would take a whole lot of convincing for me to. I mean, even yeah. just seeing the stuff that Greg posts on Twitter, yeah. and stuff behind the scenes. Greg has become a full-on magician. That that is that is absolutely the direction that they're kind of shepherding people towards with this thing. You know, Greg kind of plays the neutral party, right? You know, he's not real like you know Dana. Dana's the one who really uses magic, and Greg. Right. You know, Greg. It, it it. I guess things change whenever Greg is the one who invokes Pan. But like now on his Instagram, like he's teaching how to use sigils right you know so he's he's there's definitely been a flip-flop there you know what i mean he 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 definitely dabbled before but now it's it's like a full-on like deep dive into it it seems like now yeah so anyway um so i think it's probably a little bit of both though to answer that question i think that i think there's an invisible hand behind all of it like, so, for example, I think... Or multiple invisible hands. Like, but the hand behind Alan Greenfield is, like, pan, and it just keeps going on. Yeah, that's that's what I think. I, I think that it's not divorced from this spiritual worldview that we have. Right. You know what I mean? Like, I, I think that it's... It is these people who are using this device to initiate people, but behind that are the rulers and the principalities. And it's, it is manifesting itself in patterns that, that are discernible. Yeah. Well, they all but admit that in one of the episodes. Like, yeah. they, they lay it out in that big flow chart, and they take it to the Christian perspective, but then they dial it back and say the Christian perspective is just another mask of the phenomena, and the pagan perspective is the is the correct answer. Yeah. Yeah. So, that's, uh, yeah, I'm looking right here, and it says, you know, Hellier, begin your initiation. Right. Yep. That's the press trailer. You know what I mean? Begin your initiation. Initiation into what? Right. That's the question you got to ask. It's... It it is a world. It, initi- I'd say it's this Initi- initiation into a world of gods and magic, and a worldview that is not submitted to the lordship of Christ. That's what I would say. That's kind of my take on it. So. And it definitely fits in with the the kind of battle cry of the new age movement, like that that freedom from religious dogma yeah. and away from the Christian dominance. Yeah. Well, speaking of new age. <laughs> Oh boy, that's gonna get go. us. That's gonna get us into this conversation <laughs> yep. on Facebook. Now, if you guys weren't aware, we actually shared a picture of it on our Instagram. But it seems like that Facebook is now taking a side. Surprise, surprise! <laughs> taking a side in uh, reenchanting the world, and it seems like the. The the team that they're siding with is the New Age and the Occult. All right. So if you guys haven't seen it, uh, Facebook, I'll, I'll tell you how I came across it. The video was released August 31st, which was just a few days ago. Yep. Uh, I saw it on TV. So I was sitting over at my father-in-law's house. We were watching TV, you know, hanging out with, with our in-laws. And we were sitting there. And all of a sudden, this commercial come on. And it starts off with this young guy. Who's like, you know, talking about, you know, his girlfriend or whatever. And he's like, screw it. Let's talk astrology, right? Let's talk manifesting, you know, all of this new age stuff, right? And so, like, actually, if you look it up on YouTube, uh, you can find it. It's called Facebook Groups Screw It Let's Talk Astrology. That's the name of the video. And it was released just a few days ago. And it's, uh, there's a lot of interesting comments on it already. But uh, but it's there if you guys want to go find it. We shared a picture of it. But but uh, as the video goes along, it's very clear 
that Facebook is like taking a side here, right? Oh, absolutely. It looks identical to a recruiting video for the occult. Yeah, that was... That's exactly what I thought when I saw it. We watched it together, and that was your take on it. You told me this looks like a video to recruit people into the occult. Because they take it beyond astrology. They talk about manifestation and setting intentions and Crystal. chakras and crystals and all kinds of things and, like that. And then there's a picture. There's this... It, it goes past that, and it goes like into like... Like, uh, there's this girl, and there's this, uh, I guess it's a woman, who's, like, levitating. Right. Right? And she's, like, over her, and she's looking, uh, she's talking about a cleansing, uh, moon cleansing, like, ritual. Right? Or a cleansing. magic, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, like, there's actually ritual magic in this Facebook ad. And, you know, it's, there's a lot of interesting little things in that. But uh, we say that to say this. If you think that people like Facebook are neutral whenever it comes to this stuff, you're wrong. Right. I mean, people just need to accept that neutrality doesn't exist. Neutrality is a myth, right? Like, neutrality is a myth. No one is neutral. And Facebook has made it clear that they have taken a side. Right. Now, why is it that they're taking a side? Well, it's because what we've been saying. Reenchantment is inevitable right like the world is going to be re-enchanted like we cannot continue to live in a world that that has no transcendence and that's that's how the facebook video actually ends like it actually i I actually have it play and you probably just heard it um it said it ends by saying take on transcendence and then it says take on anything with facebook groups so they're telling people, like, here, there's transcendence here. Yeah. Take it on yourself. You know what I mean? So reenchantment is inevitable. Facebook is now proving this. Hellier is proving this, right? I mean, you really have this generation now that's coming on the heels of the of the big atheism move, movement that we saw before. Yeah. And they're they really have no religious or spiritual foundations of their own, like instilled in the home. Yeah. So they're. They're, they're hungry and starving for some kind of spiritual truth and direction, and the occult, the New Age, has given it to them. Yeah. Well, it's 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 given it to them, and the church is not. Right. I mean, here we are among ourselves, and we're arguing about if things like angels and demons are even active in our life today. Right. You know what I mean? Like, we're arguing about are the sacraments signs or do they actually do something? I mean, like, we're, we're having food fights when the enemy's dropping nuclear weapons yeah. behind our backs. Yeah. The reality is, is the person with the re-enchanted worldview is the one who's going to win. Right. Right? And um, the reality that we are asserting is that the church has it. We have the true, the original, the, right. the enchanted view of the world that isn't just enchanted, but it's true. Right. Right? We have it. And we must be the ones who gives it to the world. And we think that it comes through the recovery of these things that we're talking about, right? I mean, there's nothing the enemy wouldn't like any more than for us to stay silent on it. That's right. For these things to remain taboo topics and food fights where we just disagree with one another and basically live as materialists, Christian materialists. Where there is no transcendence, there is no overlap between heaven and earth. Like the enemy would love for us to continue living that way. Right. And 
by doing that, we give you know the enemy the opportunity to come in and present a counter enchanted worldview to our own. So I hope you see, like if Hellier proves anything, and if this Facebook ad proves anything, it proves exactly what we're saying that this is inevitable. The world is going to be re-enchanted. Like, new atheism is collapsing and dying. That's definitely a new turning point. Yeah. Secularism is collapsing and dying. And so there's going to be something that's going to fill the void. If we don't rise to fill it, paganism will, and it has. Well, you know, um, there's some great, great talks out there by a guy named Peter Jones. Uh, You can Google it. But he talks about the, the rise of neo-paganism and how he's talked about, you know, he, you know, I think he was from Italy, you know, originally, yeah. um, to my Italian family out there. Uh. What's up? <laughs> but, um, but I found out that I was, I had a lot of Italian in me last year. Uh, so, so anyway, uh, that's a whole nother story. I'm not going down that rabbit hole right now. Like that's a whole tale. Yeah. In that's itself. a whole tale in itself. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, so basically though, he was like, he was there and then he like, he would visit America on occasion. And then, like, whenever he revisited it back, I think it was in, like, the 90s, he was shocked to find out how pagan it had become. And, like, so he sees it, like, that secularism is collapsing, right? And something is filling the void. And he sees it as being neo-paganism. And he talks about that it's even coming into the church in some ways. And it is. Um, You know, there's a lot that I could say about that. But, you know, we'll we'll just, maybe we'll have that conversation some other time. Um, But anyway... Um, so re-enchantment is inevitable. You need to choose a side. Yep. You need to choose a side. Um, you know, another thing that I saw, I think that really proved this this week is, uh, been, I don't know if you saw it, but tons of arguments about, um, in the reform camp about Thomas Aquinas. And I have tons of Thomas Aquinas sitting over I on my I saw a little bit of that. Yeah. yeah. I've been posting about it a little bit here yep. and there. Um, but you know, a, a in-house fight among the reform crowd on if the reformers used Aquinas. And some people in the reform camp don't like that because, well, here's the reality. Aquinas had a supernatural worldview. I mean, like, obviously I disagree with him on certain things. Like he believed that the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist was transubstantiated into actual body and blood. And like, he's really the one who, who laid out the metaphysics for how that uh, that happens, yep. you know, he's really making use of Aristotelian, you know, categories and and things like that. But um, the reality is, is that the church that re- some reform people don't like that. <laughs> but the reality is, is that reformers made use of of Aquinas, like Turretin and his institutes made major use of them. A lot of those magisterial reformers and uh, you know sc- Protestant scholastics made use of Aquinas and thought very highly of Aquinas. I mean, even like John Owen, who was a Puritan, made use of Aquinas. But there's this, but it just goes to show that this fight is happening in our our camp right now, right? right. Like, people don't like there to be, like, basically the argument is because he's a Roman Catholic and has this supernatural worldview, like the reformers just trashed him as a whole. Right. Yeah. There's definitely some anti-Catholic, yeah, like kind of bias. Yeah, there. well, and and I think that at the core of the anti-Catholic bi- uh, bias is that there is a anti-supernatural right. bias behind that, right? I mean, like that's that that's. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like we have doctrinal disagreements with Rome, but at the core of it, there is a disagree- There is a skepticism 
uh, well, I, dare I say, there is a type of materialism yeah, they, at they, work the there. The reform community lashes out at the mysticism that's in Catholicism. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so, I, you know, I, I get it, you know, but that's really what's going on with, I think that it's more than just, you know, theological disagreements here and there. I think that at the core of it, there are, well, I know the term, I know it, this isn't something I think, I know it. There are metaphysical disagreements behind all that. I mean, right. like, not only that, but like, there's, there's major disagreements on like, like the doctrine of God. You know, like a lot of the people who reject Aquinas reject Aquinas because he was a classical theist, right? And he held to things like divine simplicity, which is basically the doctrine that everything that is in God is God. So God is not made up of parts, right? Like he is not parts. He is not made up of the parted attributes of, say, omniscience, omnipotence, you know, uh, justice, goodness. Like, I think that sometimes we think of God as being like a pizza pie. Right? It's got these slices, yep. right? And those slices, when you put them together, makes up God, right? But what happens if you take one of them away? Then you're missing something, right? right? Then you're so, and that's that's kind of the point. Is there like divine simplicity and classical theism asserts that all that is in God is God. So God, this is the reason why scriptures talk about like God is love it's not that god has love god is love god right. is not made up of the part of love but love is god god is love so anyway that's that's a whole nother discussion too <laughs> don't really want to go down like i don't want to grab it holes yeah. open it up at every turn yeah i don't really want to get into classical theism too much right now but but basically it just goes to show that there are major metaphysical uh questions and differences at work in these conversations even in our own camp as Christians, and if we do not have these right metaphysical commitments, we are not going to be able to offer the world what it needs right, right. now. This re-enchanted view of the world that can actually provide meaning, depth, and all of these things that the pagans are trying to give to people right now. So it's very, very important, I think, that we talk about some of this stuff and that we continue doing the work that we're doing here on re-enchanting the heavens, the creation and the church. So, all right. So Richie, you got anything else you want to add to that before we move on to our last section for today? All right. Well, today we finally laid out the lay of the land for our October Halloween series that we're going to do right right and so here's what we're planning on doing and we hope that you guys are excited about this as we are we're going to be doing a series on the underworld here we go the g the geography of the underworld so now you may hear that and you say wait geography of the underworld like what geography are you talking about? like the end of the, like isn't it just hell right like right. isn't it just like a lake of fire you know beneath, beneath the ground there somewhere and the answer to the question is no that's not just it that's not the that is not the vision of the underworld that is presented in the ancient world and that is not the vision of the underworld that we actually see in the bible so we see things like abraham's bosom what's that right we see talk of hades right and most people don't understand what hades is but if you don't know what hades is hades is the 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 word for the Greek underworld, right? And, and and under there you had, uh, you know, like the river Styx, right? And then you had things like the, 
the Elysium, you had the Asphodel Fields, you had, and beneath all of that, you had what the Bible refers to as Tartarus, the place where the angels that sinned in Genesis 6, where they're kept in gloomy chains until the days of darkness. And then whenever you read in sources like First Enoch, you see this river of fire coming from the throne of God and going all the way down to the underworld. Right. That is not the picture of the underworld that we have as Christians, yeah. right? Like, that's, it's just not. So, during the month of October, we're going to do a two-part series on the underworld. So, we're going to get into some deeper depth on uh, things like Abraham's bosom and how that relates comparatively to things like Elysium and things like that in Greek, Greek thought. Um, you know, we're going to talk about Hades, Sheol, that whole thing. And then we're going to talk about Tartarus. And uh, we're going to, you know, we probably will talk about Dante, um, who wrote The Inferno and, you know, all that at some point. We'll talk about some of the Greeks and we'll talk about a lot of Greek mythology. Yeah, we'll talk. You know, it's interesting because, you know, I'm not saying that the Bible like takes it wholesale. It doesn't like it tweaks things. Right. Like you've got things like Abraham's bosom and all that. But and then you've got like Jewish, you know, takes on like Sheol, that whole thing. But. But for the most part, it, it, it takes and it appropriates a lot of those similar categories. Like they don't, like the biblical writers don't object to things like Tartarus. Like and in the Greek, the Greek world, it wasn't the angels that were kept in Tartarus, but it was the Titans. But right. you can see a connection point yeah. to the Titans and the yeah. angels because what were the Titans? They were giants. Right? right. So anyway, we're gonna uh, we're saying oh, we're saying all that. Yeah, now. we're saying all that to really to whet your appetite yep. for what we're going to be talking about in October. And here's the reality: I don't think that anybody else is really talking about this. No. Like I'm not aware of anyone who has talked about the geography of the underworld and has really done a systematic approach to lay this out. So it's going to require some work on our part. Uh, oh, yeah. We're going to we're going to be talking about that. The uncut sections, which we've already planned to that series, should be really interesting. Um, so you want to make sure to head over to our Patreon and become a patron to get those conversations. You can get those for just five dollars a month by getting the sword and staff uncut. So we're going to be talking about things like where purgatory and things like that came from, ideas like that. Um, so anyway, we've got a lot more in store for that month too. But for the chin wags that month, the plan is that this week coming, Richie, you and I are going to Mothman Country. Mothman Country. We're going to Point Pleasant, West Virginia, right. which is just like an hour and forty-five minutes away from where we're at. And we're going to do go there, and we're going to do some research. We're going to go see the sites. We're going to go take some pictures. We're going to gather some research. We're going to go to the Mothman Museum. Probably have some good conversations there. Um, we plan on live streaming some of that, right? right? So Over the TNT area, Chief Cornsoft's grave, all these places. Yeah, yep, places where the Mothman was sighted. Um, so we're going to go and we're going to research some of this and we're going to have some conversations, look uh, into the men in black, that phenomenon, the injured cold stuff, and you know, kind of. This will be interest, interesting to strike up some conversations with some of the locals there too. Yeah, and so uh, we've also kicked around the idea of uh, recording exclusive video footage that's going to be released to patrons only so again you want to head over to our patreon www.patreon.com backslash sword and staff order so that you can get in on this exclusive content that we're going to be releasing but um, as of right now it looks like the two chin wags in the month of october are going to be dedicated to our journey to Mothman Country. So we'll have a part one and a part two. We'll probably pick back up some conversations in the Chinwags on Hellier probably after 
I don't know, maybe we can fit some of it in in October. We'll see, but most likely probably after October. I think we have a lot more to say probably about Hellier than what we've right. said. Especially in, with them filming season three. Yeah, yeah. This is going to be an ongoing conversation yeah. that's going to just appear from time to time. But um, also in the month of uh, October, we're going to be releasing Shadow Appalachia and a narrated minisode on Is Halloween Pagan? Uh, we're going to be releasing that on Halloween on the 31st. So make sure to tune in. So there's going to be a lot of extra content right. from the Sword and Staff in the month of October. So we hope you guys are excited about that. We're really excited about that. And so, yeah. So you got anything you want to add to that before we head off? I'm good. All right, guys. Well, as we wrap up, I want to say that uh, today's chinwag should probably serve as a nice backdrop to what we're going to be discussing in uh, next week's upcoming Sword and Staff episode. Next week, we're going to be uh, re, re, uh, continuing our series on reenchantment, and we're going to be discussing reenchanting the creation. So we'll talk about how this biblical narrative and story, how that shapes our identity, and how that shapes things other than our identity, but uh, how that changes the way that we view people, how it changes the way that we view the creation itself, um, and we'll get into some some interesting yeah. things. I think uh, how to how to view nature, uh, how to view like, the stars, and like there's a whole symbolic worldview uh, to some of this stuff that we'll we'll get into and talk about. So we hope that you guys are excited about that. And so, again, if there's uh, something you'd like for us to discuss on a chinwag, feel free to send that to us on social media or at our email, which is orderofthesordandstaff at gmail.com. Also, if you want to hear these full conversations that we're going to be having over the next month and during our reenchantment series, you need to become a patron. Head over to www patreon.com backslash sword and staff order get the sword and staff uncut for just five dollars a month we promise you won't regret it we promise that you will enjoy the content and that will go a long way in helping us do what we do here so richie you got anything else to say before we sign off i'm ready all right guys well thank you so much for listening and we'll see you again next week see you then <laughs>